Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now we turn to the New Testament. And today our reading will come from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 26, where we'll read about priorities. Peter and John were not so caught up with large crowds that they had no time for individuals. Nor were they so busy in ministry that they could not pray. They had learned their lessons well from the Lord Jesus. We'll read about power. The emphasis in chapters 3 and 4 is on the name of Jesus, the name above every name. Faith in the name of Jesus releases power so that lives are changed. To pray or minister in His name means to ask or act on His authority so that He alone gets the glory. And then we'll read about the proclamation. At Pentecost, the sound of a rushing wind drew the crowd. But here, the witness of a changed life brought the people together. Thus, Peter had the opportunity to preach, and 2,000 people were converted. Reach out to the individual, and God will give you opportunities for a bigger harvest. And with that, let's begin today's reading in the New Testament. June 5th, the New Testament, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the Beautiful Gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, He asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. "'People of Israel,' he said, "'what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors.' who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one, and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus. This man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. 
Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Today we're reading Psalm 123, verses 1 through 4. You know, throughout their history, the Jews have often had to endure the scorn and contempt of their enemies. The world does not love God's people. As we make our way on the narrow road that leads to Zion, we run up against the crowd going in the other direction. So we need to look to God's heaven. If you look at the enemy, you'll get discouraged. So look by faith to the God of the universe who reigns in heaven. And look to God's hand. He is the master. We're the servants. And he tenderly cares for his own. Just be sure your ears are open to whatever orders your master wants to give you. And then look for his help. Adequate mercy is available for you when your heart is filled with pain. Let God's words of strength drown out the enemy's words of scorn. Psalm 123, verses 1 through 4, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. I will lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. We keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy, just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a slave girl watches her mistress for the slightest signal. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy, for we have had our fill of contempt. We have had more than our fill of the scoffing of the proud and the contempt of the arrogant. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. The wise are known for their understanding, and pleasant words are persuasive. Discretion is a life-giving fountain to those who possess it. But discipline is wasted on fools. From a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. You must, you must think I'm 
Good morning, guys. This is Pastor Don Anderson with Phase 1 of the Refuge. Uh, phase 1 is also called the Discovery Center, in case you didn't know. So, anyways, um, I, was, I was asked if I would share a little bit about what my vision is for Phase 1. So, just wanted to share a little bit with you all about, you know, what I, what I see and sense for Phase 1 and what I really hope 
will come about while men come through phase one. So first of all, my vision for phase one is that it'd be a safe and structured environment for men to come, you know, just to discover who God is and who they are. But I also want it to be a place where men discover what the refuge is really all about, uh, just kind of by experiencing our culture, the way we do things, our teachings. Uh, so that, that in a nutshell is kind of the, the primary thing uh, that I'm wanting. Uh, after men discover who God is and what his expectations are for their lives, they then have a decision to make, as you all know, regarding whether or not they truly want to repent of their sins and commit to the life of discipleship uh, through means of the refuge, by going through the refuge. Phase one is a place for men to make a decision about whether or not the refuge is a fit for them, and uh, it's also a place for the coordinators and myself uh, to decide if, if a man's really a fit for the refuge based upon you know how well they are demonstrating the seven practices of discipleship. And uh, in case you forgot what the seven practices are, uh, I'd like to name those for you. The first is commitment to God. The second is relationships with others. The third is honesty and authenticity. The fourth is willingness to be taught. The fifth is gratitude and thankfulness. The sixth is courage and faith. And the seventh, it's the last but is certainly not the least, is work ethic and stewardship. You know, my desire is to thoroughly ingrain in every man who comes through comes through phase one's hearts and minds uh, these seven practices of discipleship before they transition out of phase one uh, so that, you know, they're truly aware of what a true disciple of Christ should look and act like. Uh, you know, I also really desire for men to come to phase one to find out that you know, we're really like family. You know, family is the environment uh, through God's help that I would really like to foster here in phase one. You know, my desire is not for men to come here and feel like they're in an institution or a program, uh, but rather that they feel like they're a part of a family, you know, of, of men who love and care for them enough to, you know, encourage them when they're down, but also uh, who will be honest enough to tell them when they're messing up. I believe that's what true Christian community is. You know, I want men to have fun while they're here. I want them to relax, uh, you know, by playing volleyball, going fishing, going on hikes with staff, you know, doing bonfires on the weekend. You know, I want this to be a fun experience for people while they're here. I want guys to uh, be able to build lifelong relationships with one another, uh, there's guys who I went through the refuge with that I still have, I'm still in relationship with even today, and I hope the same thing happens for the men coming through uh, phase one today. Uh, I want them to be able to build these relationships with the coordinators and myself, you know, so that after they complete the refuge, we can all just continue to be friends and walk together uh, and spur each other on in our walks with the Lord. You know, Another thing that I truly want men to experience while they're here in phase one, uh, and this is probably what I want them to experience most of all, is that I want them to truly be set free through the liberating power of Jesus Christ, who is strong enough to break any chain that is holding them in bondage. Uh, I know 
just from personal experience that you know Jesus has absolutely changed and transformed my life and uh, you know one preacher said you know God is not limited in what he can do you know what he's done for others he can do for you so I know that if he could do it for me he could do it for any man who comes through here so I, I truly desire for men to experience Christ and uh, the power that he has to to set them free from sin and bondage and uh, the power that he has to give them a hope and a future so in a nutshell uh, that's uh, that's my vision for phase one so hope you guys have a blessed day and keep on keeping on keep on fighting a good fight
Because we live by this motto at this church that says it's, it's okay to not be okay. And last week we talked about how Jesus took all of our sin and he did more than nail it to the cross. Jesus became sin for us. Every fiber of guilt, every morsel of shame, every ounce of punishment that we deserve, Jesus bore it in his body. So that when he died, your sin died with him. And here's the great part of the story. After Jesus died, two men came to the cross and they removed his body and they carried him to a tomb and they buried him. And when they buried him in that tomb, they buried your sin with him. And three days later, a heart that had stopped beating started beating again. Blood that had stopped flowing started flowing again. Lungs expanded, eyes open, hands, arms, and legs stretched out as Jesus walked out. And the reason it's okay to not be okay is because when Jesus walked out of the tomb, your sin didn't walk out with him. Your sin stayed in that tomb, buried forever, so that you could live forever. And what most people, what most people fail to understand this time of the year is the cross. It's just a ladder. It's the way the God of the universe entered into your sinful nature and my sinful nature. God came down, friends, so that someday you could go up. And no other religion in the world makes this claim. In every other religious system, you climb the ladder. With your best effort, you spend every waking moment trying to get to the top, to the deity. But in Christianity, God says, no, I came down. He initiates. He takes the first step. And he says, if you surrender, then I will save you. Notice he doesn't say, if you try harder, if you do more, give more, pray more, read your Bible more, go to church more, then I will save you. No, 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 no. God says, you just meet me at the cross and you bring all your sin with you. And he says, I will kill it and I will bury it so that it doesn't kill and bury you any longer. Now as Americans, we really struggle with this concept of surrender. It's a negative word in our vocabulary because it implies weakness. It implies defeat. And I get this as an American. It carries with it this connotation that we're giving up, that we're quitting, that we're throwing in the towel. And we just don't like that. We're strong people. And God says, if you just surrender, I'll save you. And so the American tendency when God invites us to lay our lives down is we kind of just bend one knee. But then we keep the other knee up just for safekeeping. And we surrender one part of our life. We take out the little white flag and we cut it in half. And we only surrender one part, not the whole part. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of you probably grew up in church. You're what I call a Buick, you know, a brought up in church kid. And so you, you know the stories of the Bible. You know the symbols of the Bible. You know the systems of the Bible. And again, my guess at the urging of your parents and the prompting of a pastor It's probably like on an Easter Sunday, you came forward and you made a confession and you invited Jesus into your life and you maybe were even baptized. But like a lot of Americans, you just put one knee down. And since then, you've kind of been straddling this gap between sin and salvation. 
between the church and the world. And if we were just talking over food, you and I, you'd probably admit it's exhausting. It's confusing. You might even be scared going, I don't know if I'm going to be in heaven because of the way I've been living. And here's the deal. Americans, we just perfect the art of image management. We're good at it. And the reason I know that is because I've been there. For 10 years of my life, fear ruined me. Fear ruined my life for 10 years. Matter of fact, I felt so much pressure in my life to overachieve athletically and academically. And the reason I felt so much pressure to prove myself was I didn't love myself the way that God loves, loves me. And then I came to grips in my 20s with this, the cross, and with the empty tomb. And someone cared enough about me to say, John, have you read this story? I said, yeah, I've read it. And then he said, no, have you studied this story? There's a difference. And it's a short story that captures the whole long story of the Bible. Jesus told it in Luke 15. It starts this way, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So his dad's still alive. He's not dead. And the son's saying to him, Dad, I love your money more than I love you. Even more startling than the son's request is the father's response. Verse 12, so he divided his property between them. Now, most Jewish dads would have been expected to respond to such a shameful request by disowning the son. But Jesus says, no, this dad divides his belongings, his property. In the Greek, that word property is actually bios. It translates as life. In the Jewish culture, to lose part of your land was to lose part of your identity, part of your life. And the entire Jewish community around this dad, they would have defended the dad and they would have said to this younger son, you're dead to us. You're no longer alive to us, but not the dad. The heartache, the pain as a parent, the most painful experience is non-reciprocated love. To love a child, only to have that child reject your love. Well, some of you parents have been there. Some of you might still be there. Dealt with a family recently. Their 20-something-year-old son had taken a credit card and maxed it out. All kinds of wild living. And there was two parents sitting across from me having to not only pay off the debt their son created, but they were raising the daughter he fathered. And they weren't angry. They were hurt. There was this pain that lingered in the conversation. The dad with tears in his eyes looked at me and said, John, I would do anything to get my boy back. I said, I I believe you. It goes on. Jesus said, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. You click on his Facebook page, and you can tell what he's doing with his dad's money. Prostitutes, strip clubs, weekend trips to Vegas. But then this happens, verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Translation, he's walking into the pawn shop, flat screen under one arm, laptop in the other. He's got his condo for sale on Craigslist. He's selling these designer clothes for pennies on the dollar. And then it says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
pigs in Jewish culture, most unclean animal. When Jesus would have said, this young guy's working with pigs, all the Jewish people in the audience would have gasped. I mean, his living situation is below deplorable. Analogy, this would be like if I raised my son here in Lexington culture, went to Lexington school system, and then graduated from high school and decided to go play basketball for Duke, right? (laughs) Maybe not that low, but close, okay? So... Verse 17, when he came to his senses, hit pause right there, wow. That might be the most important sentence in the whole story, if not my entire life. I was 20, sophomore in college, when God put the smelling salts under my nose, and I just kind of woke up. And with God's help, I was able to reintroduce myself to the world. Man, I've never looked back. But what about you? What will it take for you? I mean, you promised your family you're going to stop drinking. When are you going to set the bottle down once and for all? Walk away from the pills. Or when are you going to admit to a close friend, hey, I'm lonely. If you knew I'm struggling with depression. Or you might say, man, my job, my marriage is not filling me. It's draining me. Or younger women, when are you going to come to grips with the fact that the mirror, it doesn't, it doesn't define who you are. And men, your bank account doesn't determine your value. See, every year at Easter, we baptize people. And it's just a symbolic way of burying your past and being raised to a brand new life in Christ. This is why in his book, Dangerous Wonder, author Mike Iaconelli asked this important question of all of us. What happened? I mean, what happened to our aliveness? How could we grow up, accumulate 12 to 15 years of education or more, get married, have children, work for decades, and never really live? How can we begin our lives with clarity and passion, wonder and spontaneity, yet so quickly find ourselves at the middle or end of our lives, dull and bleary-eyed, listless and passionless? See, the death of a soul is never quick. It's a slow dying, a succession of little deaths that continues until we wake up one day on the edge of God's voice, on the fringe of God's love. And then he goes on, we're at war between dullness and astonishment in our culture. The good news is no longer good news. It's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing. Ah, it's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't just change people into wild-eyed radicals anymore. Ah, he changes them into nice people. And if Christianity is simply about being nice, he writes, I'm not interested. And you know what? I'm not either. But you want to know what gets me out of bed in the morning? When when the switch gets flipped and light comes on in people's hearts and minds and they wake up and they come to their senses, they realize, man, I was made for more than the spiritual pig slop I'm eating More than this spiritual pigsty I'm living in. They wake up and realize I was created for more than sin and its consequence. I was created to be loved. That's why I love the rest of the story. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, Man, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up. And he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Oh, this father sits by the window every day wondering, is today going to be the day that my kid comes home? And then he sees him. And I love this detail in the story as Jesus describes our Father in heaven. He doesn't wait for us to come to the front door and grovel and apologize. No, the Father gets up from his seat, runs out the front door, jumps off the porch, down the sidewalk, and he embraces the Son. And it says that he kisses him. We miss this in the English translation. In the Greek, it says he kisses him and he keeps on kissing him. He can't stop kissing him. And then he says, bring a robe and put it on his back and a ring on his finger. This is the father's way of saying, call the family attorney and make sure that my son's name gets put back in my will. What's mine is now his again. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. That's cross imagery. Kill the fattened calf. Make a sacrifice. Death for life. So that what's not okay between my son and I can now be okay. More than okay. Better than okay. Forgiven forever. Radically extravagantly, unconditionally loved is this boy. And that's why after the cross and the empty tomb, the writers of the Bible reach this glorious conclusion. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, his prodigal children, his sons and daughters, that we should be called the children of God. And that is current state right now at all of our campuses. That is what we are. I've read this, and it's nothing more than a love letter from a lovesick dad to his homesick children. And it describes this God like a dad who never gets tired of running to his children, embracing them, kissing them, forgiving them. And the reason so many of us struggle to believe that is because we didn't have a dad on earth like that. And so maybe the most important thing you'll ever hear me say from this stage is God is not like your dad. He's always better. Always. And his deepest longing is for you to come home. Okay or not okay. Religious or rebellious. There's nothing you've done that he can't forgive or love you through. He just wants you to come home. And I can tell you from experience, when I finally stopped running from God, and I came home, and I let him embrace me, He took this and he turned it into this. And I had to admit, like I had to surrender, I had to bend that other knee and say, you know what, Father? I know the stories of the Bible, but I'm a stranger to the Savior of the Bible. And I had to introduce myself to the man who died for me. No one had ever died for me. And I had to get acquainted with the guy who rose from the grave and defeated death for me. And that's why now in my life I'm just serious about one thing. And that's helping as many people as I can in my life experience what I'm experiencing, which is this. Freedom. I keep this near my desk to remind me of my purpose. You get them in the mail like I do. Just a little mailer and it has pictures of little kids who have been abducted. Nothing breaks my heart more than this prospect as a dad. And I don't know if you uh, saw this recently in the news, this 
this father and daughter embracing. Here's the backstory. Ten years ago, she's playing in the front yard and a man comes and snatches her, kidnaps her and tells her, your dad doesn't love you anymore. Your dad doesn't want you. He manipulated her, lied to her, brainwashed her, and she believed it. And so for 10 years, she lived just two miles. I can't get my head around this. Just two miles away from her real dad who was spending every dime he had trying to find her. But she believed he didn't want her anymore. And so at 18 years of age, she walks into a gas station, same gas station she walked into every morning before school, and the same gas station clerk greeted her like he always did, and he said, good morning, Nikki. And something clicked, and she realized she'd become someone she wasn't, and so she just said, you know what, my name's not Nikki. My real name is Tanya, and I want to go home. And there was a sincerity in her voice, and the clerk called the authorities, and they came and got her. And the picture you're looking at is that rare moment captured on tape when a father and a daughter were reunited, and the dad just kept saying to the news reporters over and over again, I got my baby back. I got my baby back. The other night, my son came in our room, and he was scared, and so he slept on the floor next to our bed. I woke up, I don't know, four or five times, and I kept looking over there thinking to myself, I wouldn't want my kids to be anywhere other than beside me. And your Father in Heaven doesn't need anything from you. Not at all. Doesn't even want anything from you. He just wants to spend eternity with you. That's it. And so He's serious about one thing, and it's you. It's you. And nothing breaks his heart more than to know this world has a way of kidnapping all of us and holding us hostage to a lifestyle that none of us in our hearts really want. We want to be set free from it. And so my prayer all week for you has just been very simple. God, help them stop running from you and help them run towards you. And for my friend Keith, man, it took him decades, literally decades, to realize that his dad was not like his heavenly father at all. It took him decades to experience this freedom that his heart was craving. And so we flew to California this week, and we interviewed Keith. This is his story. I ran from God, and I squandered wealth, and I lived lavishly for many years without thought of God. From an early age, I didn't feel accepted, uh, partly because, you know, my mother and my father, when I was born, were incapable at that time in their life to accept the responsibility of a child. My mother had just gotten married for her sixth marriage, and, and the guy she married was, uh, was religious or saved or, you know, and, and, it, and the experience of being whipped with a fiberglass rod and told, and scriptures read as he was, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, I had a bad taste in my mouth about scripture right then. The God I knew back then was like a judge, you know, behind, you know, when you went to court, to drop the hammer and said, to hell, you know, and, you know, no, and I felt, that he was a condemning God and that no matter how hard I might try to be a good person, I could never live up to that God, what he wanted from me. I remember 
my stepfather telling me that for every F and for every U on my report card, I would get five lashes. And I came home with straight U's and straight F's. And I went to school the next day and I was bleeding and cut. And I found this as my opportunity to get out of this house. And I made my way to the principal office and, and I, um, they made me strip my clothes and take pictures, called D Department of Children's Services and, and removed me from the home. When I was 16 years old, I saw my aunt and my uncle, and they told me, your mother had an aneurysm, and she's in a coma. I had been estranged from my mother after leaving the, the family at that last whipping, and it had been a couple years, and we hadn't really spoke. <clears throat> I went to the hospital. I remember the nurse telling me, you know, sometimes they can hear what you are saying, and... I took this opportunity to grab her hand, and it was just me and her. And this is probably the first, it was the first time in my life that I told my mother, I said, I love you. And she died while I was holding her hand. The pain from what I experienced right then, maybe it was because I had finally told her I loved her, or, or it was her death, or feeling once more alone, I covered my emotions and my feelings more, more with alcohol and drugs than ever before. It would be the start of my downward spiral. And I kind of ran with my half-brother. We would go into the projects and rob people for drugs and come out of the project with bullet holes in our car. We would break into houses. To drink and to do drugs, you need money, and we didn't have a job. Our job was using. Our job was drinking. And uh, to be able to afford our addiction, we had to come up with creative ideas of how to, to gain more and use more. When I was 22 years old, I went into a bar looking to sell drugs and, and I saw a man standing at the bar. I remember he pulled a wad of $100 bills out of his pocket and I said, that guy probably needs drugs. And I went over and said, hey, do you want to buy some drugs? And he's like, no, I don't want any drugs. And I go, well, then buy me a drink. And he goes, well, get a job. And I said, well, I'm trying to find a job. And he said, well, I have a store. You can come build some shelves for me in the morning and gave me the address and bought me a drink and thought he'd never see me again. I didn't know where he told me to come to work was an adult bookstore. Um, and I was waiting there for him when he pulled up to build shelves. I stayed with him for 10 years. I went from building those shelves to shipping to selling to um, eventually leaving him and starting my own company and becoming Southern California's largest adult distributor. There were only two large distributors in the world and there was me on the West Coast and another guy on the East Coast. I would never use the word pornography because it was too harsh of a word for myself. I didn't want to accept the fact that I was in pornography, so I softened it up with words like adult video distributor. I finally came to a point in my life that nothing was working anymore. I couldn't fix on buying things to cover up those feelings that go way back from when my mother died, or those feelings of feeling alone, or feeling um, like an outsider. 
I can't say I was running to anything because I was running from my past, not realizing that I was running to nowhere. I was in a hurry to get to nowhere. I didn't know that God was starting to intervene in my life and he had a perfect plan for, for changing my life. I remember that uh, one of the things my friend had told me, God knew what he got when he got you. And as long as you're running to, you're running from. And so at this point in my life, I started running to God. I didn't know how I was going to change this big mess that I had. I didn't know how I was going to get out of the business or how I was going to change anything. I just... All I could do was focus on running to God. That was the only thing that seemed to work for me at that moment. And I knew in my heart that I had to make a change. When I finally came to my senses, I had prepared what I could say to God when I came home. But when returning home, I realized it didn't make a difference what I had to say. He took me just as I was. I ran from God and I squandered wealth, and I lived lavishly for many years without thought of God. And he took me back into his arms and accepted me and gave me grace through his son. Thank you for listening to Transformation Radio.